0: Hi, my name's Dr Rachel Steen and I'm a GP Registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic. to Finding Fair Health podcast. In this bonus episode of Finding Fair Health, I'm having a chat with Dr. James Matheson about COVID 19 and how it is affecting the most vulnerable patients. James is a GP with Hope Citadel working at Hilltop Surgery in Oldham, one of the most deprived areas of the country. He is also chair of the Health Inequality Standing Group at the Royal College of General Practitioners. So he's been working hard over the last few weeks to think about how he and other GPs can support the most vulnerable not just in Oldham but what this means for the most vulnerable nationally too. So James what an eventful few weeks how are you doing?
1: I'm doing all right thank you Rachel how are you?
0: Yeah I'm okay thank you it's a funny time isn't it?
1: It's um it really is yeah we've uh, we've at home just emerged from um, from the 14 days quarantine so we're getting a, a bit of experience of that and we're into a very different world and, and way of working at the moment in the practice and, uh, and in general practice more widely I think.
0: What's happening particularly at your practice that's changing?
1: So um, so like many practices around the country I think we've, we've actually changed the way we see people and um, we're doing most of our consultations either by telephone or, or video link which which presents a lot of challenges really for, um, for patients and doctors alike and, um, and it, it's changed a lot about the kind of dynamics of the consultation but also it, it's shown us a lot more about who we need to be seeing and, and considering how we best support them um, through this very different medium we're finding at the moment that actually we're we're waiting for the real onset of high volume of COVID cases hitting us in the community. At the moment, most of that focus seems to be in the hospitals and. What with the reduction in our, our kind of general background workload that's been deprioritized with the advent of COVID, we actually have a little bit of time to do stuff, and and that means we've been thinking about um, thinking about how we best support our prex population through the COVID response, which kind of brings us around to what you're saying about vulnerable people. Mm. Um, so so across the country, we've been hugely busy, haven't we? We've been identifying people who are at, at high medical risk of poor outcomes from COVID, um, and we've been getting in touch with them with sort of general shielding advice and, and specific advice to, to their situations. Um, and um, and general Pence has been really busy with that and one of the way one of the reasons why we've been busy with it is we're uniquely well placed to identify folk who are vulnerable and, and give them the kind of trusted advice that they need um, and the same principle applies to people who are socially vulnerable as well perhaps just as much so um, All those people who were vulnerable before COVID uh, are just as vulnerable even more so now. And the kind of social and economic sequelae of COVID and the COVID response made a lot more people vulnerable. So this is another area where we as general practice can make a a huge, huge difference. and we all know the kind of patients we're talking about. We're, we're talking about those people who would always kind of ring a bell in the back of your mind to ask about their well-being. They're the kind of people who we know don't necessarily engage that well with healthcare and, and social support systems at the best of time. Those people who are kind of socially isolated, those people who are food insecure or financially insecure in other ways, those people with severe mental illness, those people with learning disabilities, and all those folk who, who would fit into the group that they often call marginalised and excluded. And if they were marginalised and excluded beforehand, well, for the most part, they're even more so now. Although actually, there have been some really happy exceptions to it.
0: So, tell us a bit about those exceptions.
1: Uh, so with COVID going on, there's just huge amount of, of tragedy and sadness all around us. But, but at the same time, I've been hugely heartened by, by quite a few things, actually, that have been happening across the country. One of the things that has hugely impressed me has been um, has been the national response to, to look after people who are experiencing homelessness. And what we've seen is almost overnight the ability for, for the government and local councils to house people. And these are exceptional circumstances, of course, and um, and, and putting a roof over people's heads is only a start. But actually, it's a really huge start, and uh, and it demonstrates what can be done when we make when we make the health and well-being of vulnerable groups a real priority.
0: Mm, yeah. So it's actually quite exciting that so overnight we've managed to try and help and support these people that we probably weren't doing a massively great job at supporting. Previously, Do you think there's other things that we can learn from this challenge that will help us in the future in terms of supporting the most vulnerable?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think there's, there's different kind of ways of looking at this. We can look at it at the societal level, at the regional level, and we can look at it at the kind of individual level. Um, and I'm a huge believer in the power of general practice. Uh, to make a real, real difference in the lives of individual people, but also the lives of of us as a society. Um, And the way we can do that is by doing our normal job and and looking after all of our PEP's population. Um, We as GPs, we have, what, about 53,000 GPs in the UK having almost a million consultations every day. Um, And that's a huge kind of capacity to to engineer change. Um, And when we're doing our day-to-day care, whether that be caring for for people with COVID or carrying on the usual really important care, um, and it's vital that that does continue during this crisis, um, we can identify those people who are, who are vulnerable and those people who are gonna be increasingly vulnerable during this crisis. Um, and we can do it very simply, we can ask people, Uh, We can ask people about how their situation is at home, whether they have a roof over their head, whether they feel safe at home, especially with this, this new kind of pressured environment where everyone's stuck indoors and we're hearing more and more about safeguarding issues and domestic abuse being on the rise. We can ask people about whether they feel safe. We can ask people about whether they have enough to eat, whether they're financially secure in other ways. Um, and we can ask people how their mental health is doing under the particular duress of this situation. Um, so as individual GPs we can be doing that every, uh, every contact we have. Um, and one of the things we've been doing and practices around us have been doing is building up a list of those people who we think are, are probably socially vulnerable as well as being medically vulnerable and coming up with a plan for how we support them through the crisis. And that support varies according to what the need is. For some people, it may just be a phone call to, to make sure they're doing all right and their mental health isn't about to uh plummet due to a situation at home. For other people, it will be it will be more basic stuff. Um, carrying on the services we had before and, and making sure people actually are getting food that they need, people have some kind of social contact. Um, And people aren't about to to run out of supplies and and be absolutely without any food or supplies in the house um, because of COVID or, or because of the continuation of their situation was happening beforehand.
0: How are you identifying those people, James? So there's a high risk group who are being recommended to shield for the 12 week period. And there's, there's obviously people who are missing in this group or people who think they might be in this group who aren't. So how are you looking at your practice list and identifying these people and making sure that you're sort of using your time effectively to reach out to the people who are the most vulnerable?
1: So, we're very lucky where we are. We have focused care. Focus care is kind of practice level intervention um, to look after the needs of our patients or households with the most complex needs. So, our list of our focused care patients is, uh, is a pretty good place to start for us. Um, For other practices where they don't have folks care, there's often an equivalent or or similar sort of process in place. So for those people who have link workers and uh, other parts of the nation they've been well established for a long time, um, social prescribers, all the kind of people who navigate this territory uh, and know these people with uh, their particular vulnerabilities really, really well, um, that's a great place to start a list. Um, there is a lot of overlap, as you say, with people, for example, with multi and We know multi and, and complex comorbidities come early in deprived areas. Um, but there's also a lot of people who aren't on that uh, medically vulnerable list who are still vulnerable. Um, so for uh, other places you can kind of look for these folks, we can look on the list of our patients with severe and enduring mental illnesses. Um, we can look at the, uh, the audits, the, the patients who we see most regularly, those patients who, um, for whatever reason, need a regular contact with a doctor just to kind of keep taking over. and um, That need hasn't gone away much as we've kind of prioritised COVID in our response at the moment. Um, for those practices who exception report, from Croft, that's really a good place to to find patients who aren't engaging very well with healthcare, but who have definite healthcare needs. And then the key thing is to kind of build upon it, because we know that people out there who've been just getting by, having had 20% of their income knocked off, will maybe not be getting by so well. And that will probably become apparent as long as we keep up contact with our patients and as long as we keep asking. Yeah,
0: so these are all really great ideas for us to t- take away and try and Used to um, help the most vulnerable within our communities. Do you think the, some of these patients, are, I, I know we're saying that they're, because they're the most vulnerable, they're probably more at risk, but do you think some of these people are more at risk of getting coronavirus just because they might find social distancing more difficult in deprived areas?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, one of the things that COVID has done is it's put into kind of stark relief the massive inequalities in our society. And they've been very prominent. And and sadly, they continue to affect people's health and well-being throughout lockdown and the COVID response. Some of the data that's coming out of America already supports exactly what you just said, that the people who are best able to observe the kind of social distancing and stay at home are those with a reserve of wealth that allows them to do so. Uh, We know from the recent Marmot report 10 years on that um, the number of people who have a financial reserve has dropped massively over the last 10 years of austerity. And we know that over 50% of um, children who are living in poverty are living in working families. And in order to preserve any kind of income and, and feed people's families, they need to be coming up with some kind of income that is reliable. Um, And the data in America showed that um, more people from low incomes were going out and working, more people from higher incomes were staying at home because they could. Um, And we need to recognise that because that's important for those people and it's also important for the spread of the disease. Um, The government's done some amazing things, absolutely amazing in terms of, of financially supporting parts of the population. But but it does need to be more broad, uh, it does need to be more inclusive, and it does need to be enduring. Another one, the the curious changes uh, of society in Covid is a couple of months ago, if you'd suggested that a Conservative government might be bringing in a measure that looked like universal basic income, well that would have been laughable, but now we're approaching that sort of territory And it's happened for portions of the population, but but not quite for everyone yet. Um, And there's lots of different ways that um, the the kind of poverty and inequality affect the spread of disease. Um, So you mentioned people's ability to quarantine, so one is financial. Um, the other is about the kind of circumstances in which you find yourself. So, having come out of 14 days of quarantine, I've been in, uh, in a place where we have a little garden we can get outside, um, and we're financially secure enough to be able to weather that storm without any problem. Um, and lots of people in the areas where I work don't have gardens. Um, they have a lot of people in those households. And one of the things we've been seeing since the advent of universal credit is the huge increase in the number of homeless families. And these folks sometimes don't get the media attention because they're not physically out on the street without a roof. Um, but a lot of these folks will have multiple children and will be living in single room accommodation in uh, a bed and breakfast or temporary housing somewhere. And if we think being at home here is challenging, well, that's, that's a huge challenge. And then we have those vulnerable populations who, who have been traditionally marginalised and excluded. So the homeless folk were very much in the face of the media and in the face of the government as a, a real difficulty when it, it came to social distancing. And I'd love to say that I think it was purely out of concern for their health and well-being for this hugely vulnerable group that we suddenly managed to house them. But of course, one of their key considerations was the fact that they were identified fairly early on as being significant vectors for the disease. Through no fault of their own, um, being homeless and surviving involves a lot of movement and a lot of social interaction, which is another way that the The disease spreads. And the same is true for other groups as well. So, we've not been hearing very much about care for people like gypsies and travellers, another group who live in very close social proximity and uh, and they're very social within that community. Um, And they're also an itinerant population who often aren't registered with any kind of regular health care. And we talk about People who have difficulties engaging with with healthcare, I did it myself a few minutes ago, but engagement is a two-way process and and we have to be willing, and and at the moment we have to be active um, in encouraging people to register with doctors so that healthcare is there if they need it. Um, And our healthcare system can, can put off people engaging in other ways as well. And another group who have had a little bit of the media spotlight, probably more so in other countries, uh, are refugees and asylum seekers. Um, And there are a lot of people out there in this country um, who who may or may not have an irregular immigration status, um, but who are scared of accessing healthcare because they fear they'll be charged and they can't afford those charges. Um, and what that means is those people who, again, will often be in overcrowded and insecure accommodation, um, will be forced to manage their disease on their own and, and be at higher risk of spreading it as well. So whilst we're paying attention to, to people who are vulnerable, um, not just of spreading the disease, but the consequences of it, we should really take a close look around all of our society and, and look at all the people who need that kind of help and support.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and there's, so there's lots of things you've talked about that we can do and lots of specific groups of people that we need to think about supporting. How do you think making some of these changes and supporting these people now is gonna continue when this is all over? Do you think we'll manage to do that? Or do you think this is just a short-term um, intervention?
1: So I'm really hopeful, actually. Um, I've been hugely heartened by a lot of the changes we've seen happen spontaneously uh, around the country. Um, I think we've seen the rise of community in a way we, we've talked about the power of community in the NHS for a long time, but, um, but we've really seen that kind of come to life over the last couple of weeks. I've been, I've been massively heartened by half a million people volunteering to put themselves in, in, in the way of danger uh, to look after the most vulnerable people in our society, and, and that's massive. Um, and I've also seen this, this adaptability, this flexibility, and, and the ability for massive changes to happen, um, simply because we as a society um, uh, have decided that that's a priority and that's what we're going to do. And these are lessons that, that will stay with us. And naturally, there's been a lot of talk throughout all of this, especially since the lockdown began, about when will things get back to normal. And I think now is a real opportunity to change what normal is. And we're in a, we're in a place where society has suddenly recognised that the, the groups of people who keep society going, so NHS workers, yeah, we're getting a lot of attention at the moment, and a lot of people who work for the NHS, from nurses to cleaners to laundry folk, uh, are people who are really, really low paid, um, with low job security. Um, and yet these are the folks who are keeping the healthcare system going. Um, for all the cashiers, all the delivery people, um, all those carers, paid and unpaid, these are, these are the kind of roles that are keeping the country going. And we've kind of woken up and realised that. Um, And we're starting to appreciate the true, true value of what these folk do. So I'm hugely hopeful that the changes that will come out of this can be enduring, that when we get back to the new normal, that it will be a normal where actually people on low incomes could maybe get paid a bit more and have a bit more job security and a bit more of a social security net if things go wrong.
0: Mm. I really hope so too. I really hope that we'll um, come out of this yeah. with some positive change and supporting some of those people and recognising those people for the amazing work that they do. Well thank you James for your time and sharing some of your experience and some of the stuff you, um, you've picked up over the last few weeks and plans for the next few weeks in terms of supporting the most vulnerable. It's been really really interesting to chat to you today and yeah I've got lots to take back and think about what we can do in practice so thank you so much.
1: Um, Thanks Rachel and um, just one last thing say is that uh, some of the things that we talked about uh, are going to be recorded in advice uh, which come out in the Royal College of GP's COVID uh, response pages. Uh, it's a list of advice and some useful links about looking after vulnerable individual and groups during the COVID crisis. Um, thanks so much for your time yeah no, well
0: thank you and i will put a link to um, the rcgp um vulnerable group guidance as soon as that comes out um, on the um fair health um page with this podcast and in the show notes so fantastic really looking forward to reading those james thank you um thanks for your time james and catch up soon take care yeah take care cheerio thank you all for listening you will be able to find further episodes on the fair health website if you haven't been on there already please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk. It is a fantastic educational resource. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter, at FairHealthUK or at RMSteam. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.